All right, we're going to return to our study in the very short letter of Jude. We'll be there in just a moment or two. It's only 25 verses long in our English Bibles. Uh, and if you were with us, if you've been with us, this is our this is our third in our series on Jude. It'll take us just a few more weeks, and we'll we'll finish off our thoughts on this little tiny book uh, of Jude. We spoke briefly a couple of weeks ago about what we call postmodernism. That's the worldview that pretty much dominates our society today. It replaced modernism. That's why they call it postmodernism. Comes after modernism. That was a common worldview for a hundred years or so, over a hundred years. Modernism was the viewpoint uh, that promoted the idea that science or knowledge or education was, uh, was the, the answer to all of our problems. Science could explain almost everything. Science could solve our problems. Science could fix anything that needed to be fixed. Science almost became godlike in the minds of many folks. And while those ideas are still with us, in some ways, modernism is being replaced, especially in the younger generation, with what we call postmodernism. Post, just a prefix that means afterwards. Uh, and this postmodernism says, you can study and research and experiment and theorize and come up with ideas all you want, but we can never really know anything for sure. You can't be certain about anything. And part of the reason why postmodernism is becoming more popular is because folks are realizing that science, meaning education and more and more knowledge, science cannot fix us after all. Simply gaining more knowledge doesn't change the heart. Science doesn't solve domestic abuse. Science doesn't end political corruption. Science has not ended poverty. Education does not stop crime. In fact, an old country preacher I heard many years ago he explained it this way. He said, you arrest a guy for robbing a train and you send him to prison and educate him. When he comes out of prison, he'll just steal the whole train. Because now he's educated. But he says, see, you haven't changed his heart. See, science or knowledge can't fix our problems because it can't change the heart. Only God changes hearts. And he does it through his word, through the Bible. As we read last week in the, talking in our Mother's Day message, remember Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the foundation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We read a few weeks ago in our study in Jude, Romans 1, they, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Paul's talking about the unbelieving world drifting away from God. He says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And the next several verses there in Romans 1 explain that downward spiral that follows the rejection of the knowledge of God. So for several generations, mankind was, was, was looking to science, looking to, looking to more knowledge, more education. But they were at the very same time doing everything in their power to disconnect God from knowledge. And we are reaping the harvest of that in our society today. So many, many young people, many in the younger generation, have become so disillusioned with life and with all, everything in it, they've just decided nobody can know anything for sure about anything. That's postmodernism. And you know, without a foundation in the knowledge of God, without roots in the knowledge of God, in the Word of God, the storms of life are going to blow us all over the place. And, and, and people are just going to feel hopeless. 
And many people do. You see, because if I can't know for sure about anything, then, and I can't be certain about anything, then life is empty. So what's the point? Thus we have the suicide numbers we have today. And the opioid addiction numbers we have today. With 107,000 opioid overdose deaths last year in our country. And the gender dysphoria that we have today. And the political corruption that we have today, etc., etc. That is all the fruit of postmodernism. You see, if there is no objective standard for truth, then there's no standard of right and wrong. And there's no standard to use to determine what's true and what's false. I can't know anything for certain, they say, so I don't know who I am or what I'm supposed to be or how I should act or what I should do. I don't have a purpose or a goal or any way to make a reasonable decision because I can't know anything for certain. So I just wander around in life hoping for some direction, trying to find an identity because you can never really know anything for sure. That's the story, unfortunately, of many in our younger generations. Now we might expect that the unbelieving world would struggle with that. Because once you remove God and His source of objective truth, His Word, once you remove that from life, then you wind up with emptiness and lostness and hopelessness. But unfortunately, this postmodernism <clears throat> is, is creeping into certain churches. The main source of this is called what we call the, the emerging church movement, but its effects have spilled over into other church groups as well. One of the most well-known Christian magazines in America a number of years ago published an article about the emerging church. And that's not a denomination or anything formal or structured. It's just a movement. And, and, and one of the leaders in this movement said, I don't think we've got the gospel right yet. He said, I don't think the liberals have it right either, but I don't think we have it right either. Neither of us has arrived at orthodoxy. If you're not familiar with that term, it just means established, correct doctrine. And I'm thinking, we don't have the gospel right? What's he saying? He's saying that after 2,000 years of church history, we still don't know what we're supposed to be preaching? According to him. He went on to say, it's not like we have the truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on a wall. We don't have it nailed down, freeze-dried, and shrink-wrapped forever. This same person co-authored a book entitled Adventures in Missing the Point, in which they supposedly re-examine everything we believe about a variety of issues. And you know, I, I, I just, I don't think Jude would be very impressed. Uh, promoting uncertainty, muddying up the river of truth, pretending that the martyrs who went before us dying for the gospel didn't know what they were doing, or refusing to defend the revealed truth of God is, is to me a very rebellious form of unbelief. It, it is spiritual arrogance for a person to think that they know more than God. And to think that God did not speak clearly regarding the way of forgiveness and eternal life. Now I'll grant you there are some unanswered questions. And there are a few things we may not fully comprehend in certain passages of the Bible. But I'll tell you, when it comes to the gospel, and by the gospel we talk about, we've I've de defined this for you, the gospel is the person and work of Christ. You say, I don't know what that means either. The person of Christ means who he is. The work of Christ means what he did. When it comes to the gospel, 
the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he did, and, and, and the way of salvation, and the confidence of eternity we can have through the Lord Jesus, there is no uncertainty. Absolutely none. There, there, there is truth. We can accept it, we can reject it, but it's truth nonetheless. Speaking about unbelievers, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, the verses in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, you don't need to turn there, I just quote it to you. He says, they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. You see, genuine love of the truth is built right into saving faith. It is one of the marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ. And not only would Jude not be impressed with this uncertainty about the gospel, but we would also very quickly realize, if you've been with us in our studies, if you, if you don't, you're going to see it today when I read it. It doesn't take you long reading Jude's little short letter. Uh, he is not politically correct. He doesn't smile sweetly and pat false teachers on the back and tell them that he has to respectfully disagree with their conclusions. He opens the furnace door and he gives them a heated blast of condemnation. Not because he doesn't like the color of their church carpet but because they are corrupting the gospel. They, they are pretending to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they are perverting the truth about him. Before we look at Jude, please turn to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read you just a couple of verses here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is talking about false teachers, people who are, who are preaching false doctrine and so forth. 2 Corinthians 11. And I just want to read verse 13, 14, and 15. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13, 14, and 15. Paul says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. See, Paul is basically saying false teachers are not easy to spot. They have the appearance of ministers of righteousness and angels of light. You see, when the devil comes to, to, uh, to attack people, he's not showing up in a little red suit with a forked tail and a pitchfork and horns on his head. He's showing up in a three-piece business suit. And he's going to fly in on his private airplane, and he's going to have 15,000 people listening to him talk. And he's going to smile, and he's going to talk smooth, and it's going to look great. Because he says Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He said, so his ministers do the same kinds of things. They pretended to be ministers of righteousness. He says, they are deceitful workers. They're transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, but they're not the apostles of Christ. So Jude, back to look at our passages now in Jude. Jude explains to us what to look for. If false teachers are sometimes difficult to see, and sometimes they are, what is it that we should be looking for? In our last study, you remember from the book of Jude, if you were with us, Jude described these apostates as having no respect for God and turning God's grace into a license to sin 
and denying the sovereignty of God over them. Now in these next verses, Jude calls them four different names, and we're going to take each one of those apart. He calls them false dreamers, he calls them immoral, he calls them rebellious, and he calls them disrespectful of angelic beings. And we'll take those apart. False dreamers, immoral, rebellious, and disrespectful of angelic beings. If you got your place there in Jude, we're going to begin to read in verse 8. I'm going to go to verse 13. This week, we're just going to examine verses 8, 9, and 10. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Well, let's read here in Jude. This is where we left off last week, or two weeks ago, was at verse 7. So we'll pick it up in verse 8, and we're going to read to verse 13. Jude. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And we'll explain all of those things, Lord willing, next week in verse 11. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. See what I mean about him not being politically correct? <laughs> he just opened the furnace door and blast the daylights out of them. Okay, and he calls them, we're going to look at those false dreamers, immoral, rebellious, and disrespectful of angelic beings. When he talks about dreamers, you know, there are a couple of different Greek words that are translated dream in the New Testament. The one Jude uses here is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it indicates a dream of revelation from God, not a normal dream that we just, we all have dreams. I never remember my dreams. Carol seems to remember some of her dreams, a lot of them. Sometimes she'll wake up in the morning laughing hilariously about some dream she just was having. Uh, I, I don't remember anything about my dreams. But when Jude is talking about, he's not talking about just the normal dreams everybody has all the time. He's talking about dreams of revelation from God. That, that's, that's the Greek word that, that he uses there. And so when Jude describes these apostates, these false teachers, as, as dreamers, He's saying that they are basing their teachings on dreams and visions that are supposedly from God rather than on the Scripture. They are rejecting the teachings of the Scripture. They are basing their deceptions and their lies on their own imaginations. If you're wondering what the difference is in the Bible between a dream and a vision, a dream comes when you're asleep, a vision comes when you're awake. And various people throughout the Bible had dreams and visions. Now, but when the dreams and the visions came from God, God made sure they understood it was from Him, and they, and they understood what, what God was saying. And one thing you always see, the dreams and the visions never contradicted God's revealed Word. Remember our definition of truth from a few weeks ago? Truth is anything that is consistent with the will and character of God. 
Truth, truth is God's expression of himself. He's the author of truth, the source of truth, the final standard for truth, the ultimate judge of truth. So truth is anything that is consistent with the will and the character of God. So if a dream doesn't line up with the will of God and the character of God, it's a false dream. It's a fake vision. It's not truth. Hold your finger here in Jude and look back with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Let me show you a very interesting passage there. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Of course, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 13. We just look at these first few verses in Deuteronomy 13. He says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams... And he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. In other words, the sign or the wonder that he claims proves his dream, it, it, it actually comes true. But look at the message. But he says, if, if the message is, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. Interesting, see? Moses says, a dreamer comes with a message from God, and he's got a miracle to go along with it. And it seems real, and the sign comes true. It's a real miracle. It actually comes true. But the message, Moses says, does not line up with God's revealed will. He says, don't you dare do it. See, the fact that it's a dream or a vision doesn't automatically make it true. The fact that the dreamer or the visionary has a sign or a miracle that actually happens doesn't make it truer from God. It's only true if it lines up with the revealed will of God in His Word. No dream from God ever contradicts His Word. The ultimate authority is the Word of God, not my feelings or what I think I dreamed. The phrase people many use, well, God told me this always has to be measured by the Word of God. Because truth is anything that is consistent with the will and the character of God. Everything else is false. Miracles don't prove the truth. Dreams don't prove the truth. Visions don't prove the truth. You may say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. People see things all the time. Yes, I know they do. People have dreams all the time. Yes, they do. People have visions all the time. I hear about them. I'm, I'm sure you hear about them. I hear about them. And you know what? I, I don't doubt the reality of a person's experience. But I do question the source. What I mean by that is this. If somebody comes to me and says, oh, Pastor, I was driving down the road the other night and I saw this and this strange light happened and I saw this guy and I think it's a guy that died a few years ago and he looked like he walked right across the road in front of me. I don't tell him, oh, you just dream, or whatever. I don't doubt the reality of their experience. I just question the source. See, I don't doubt that they saw it or heard it or dreamed it. Some fellow stopped by our house several, a number of weeks ago. 
scared to death. He was shaking virtually on my front porch, thinking demons were in his house. Things were being moved. He was hearing things in the night. I mean, he was trying everything he could try. He had a crucifix in his car. He had a statue of Mary sitting in his house. I mean, sitting in his front seat. He had, he had a Bible. He had everything. I didn't tell him, oh, you're nuts. All those sound curious crazy. No, I mean, he, if he said he's hearing it, he's hearing it. Okay. I don't doubt the reality of his experience. I just question the source. You see, I, if, if they saw it or heard it or dreamed it, okay. I just question the source of where they saw it or heard it or dreamed Satan and his demons are very powerful. They, they are fantastic imitators. You know, Satan cannot create. Only God can create. But Satan is a fantastic imitator. When Moses and Aaron in the presence of Pharaoh uh, threw down Aaron's rod and it turned into a snake, Pharaoh's magicians threw down their rods and they turned into snakes too. Aaron's snake ate all their snakes, proving his power over Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's magicians, empowered by Satan, imitated that sign. You want to read it? It's in Exodus chapter 7, first 13 verses. You can read the story yourself sometime. You see, just because it appears to be supernatural doesn't automatically mean it's from God. Satan is an impressive imitator. So when it comes to dreams and visions, I don't doubt the reality of a person's experience, but I do question the source of the experience, and so should you. One more scriptural illustration. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling the story. Some people call it a parable. I don't call it a parable. I think it's very real. It's not just an illustration. Jesus, when he was speaking parables, he didn't use people's names. But here in this parable, he names a person, Lazarus, and he talks about Abraham. This isn't a parable. This, this is a real event. Some of you are familiar. We've talked about it in past years, the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. This rich guy, he's, he's, he's wealthy, and, and Lazarus, this poor beggar, is eating the crumbs that fall from his table. He's eating, he's eating the rich man's table scraps. That's how he's staying alive. Interestingly, the rich man did not have a relationship with the Lord. The beggar did. And when they died, the rich man went to Hades, the part that is time of, the part that where people suffer. The rich man, or I'm sorry, Lazarus, he went to Abraham's bosom, as it was called. Well, I won't get into all of the theology behind that, but Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he took all of those people in that in that part of that righteous half of Hades, took them to heaven with him. Now today, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But Abraham was there, and the, the rich man's burning in the flames, and he looks across and he sees, hey, that's, that's, that, that's that beggar that yeah, used to eat my table scraps. And he calls out, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here with a little bit of water to, to put it on my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham says, I'm sorry, we can't do that. There's a great gulf in between us. We can't cross over to you. You can't cross over to us. And he says, well, okay, if you can't do that, send Lazarus back to my brothers. I got five brothers. 
Let's pick up our reading in verse 27. Luke 16, verse 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, and notice this, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That's the Bible. That was the Old Testament scripture. They've got the scripture, Abraham says. Let them hear that. But the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, Abraham says to him, and by the way, Abraham is called the father of the faithful. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You know what? Miracles don't prove the truth. Abraham says they got, they got the scriptures. And if they won't believe the scriptures, they won't repent because of a miracle. You see, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. If you can just convince somebody with enough verses and enough proofs, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It is a spiritual problem. And, and no amount of evidence and proofs and miracles or signs are, are, are going to turn unbelief into faith. But the revealed Word of God, the Bible, the Gospel, it has the inherent power to do that. As the Apostle Paul wrote that great verse in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You see, there is transforming power in the gospel of Christ. The word of God changes people when we are loyal to it. So back to Jude. And don't worry, my first point was the longest. Okay, you're thinking, man, it's five after twelve and he's only in point number one. Yeah, hold on, it's all right. Okay. Jude says these these false teachers, these apostates who, are, who say they are following God but they deny the truth about Jesus he says these guys are a bunch of dreamers they are basing their teachings not on the word of God but on their own imaginations he said these dreamers it's all, all wrapped up in that word his, his, his readers knowing the Old Testament they know what he's talking about they know Deuteronomy 13. They know what's happening there. And so Jude, writing to his basically Jewish audience, he says, these dreamers, these guys who are, who are basing everything they teach on their imaginations, not on the Word of God. He says, these guys are, they are, they are immoral, rebellious, and disrespectful, are his next thoughts there. The word flesh here, when he says the next phrase, they defile the flesh. Again, two different words for flesh in the Greek New Testament. Sometimes it means our physical body. Sometimes it means our sin nature. That sinful part of us that we're always trying to defeat and win over, and where you have the flesh and the spirit fighting each other. And, and we understand that, 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 that concept. Many of you do. Okay, but the word flesh here indicates the physical body rather than the sin nature. And the word defile means to stain or pollute or contaminate. So you put it together, defiling the flesh, and he is referring, it's a phrase that's used through the New Testament to refer to sexual sin. 
And so he says, these, these false teachers, he says, they, they are immoral because they have no inner restraint. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the indwelling presence of Christ. They are not living in submission to the Word of God. They are denying its truth. So why would they not be indulging their passions? Jude says they pollute the physical body with sexual sin. I wasn't going to tell you this illustration, but I think I'm going to anyway. Some time ago, it's probably been a, it's been a number of years ago, we were snowed in. It was before we had all the online stuff. and So we were, we were home on, on a Sunday. I can't, of course, you, you know, we never get snowed in in Hart Butte. Of course, never. So, But anyway, that, that, that particular week, we were snowed in, and I was surfing channels looking for something to watch. And, and, and there was a preacher at a big, huge church just filled with people. And uh, he's having some lady come up on the platform to sing. And she walks up on the platform and sings, Ooh, babe, you are looking good. Hey, is she looking good? Ooh, yeah, baby, she's looking you, Babe, you are looking good. I said, hey, somebody take a hymn book and smack that guy, would you? <laughs> what in the world? Okay, Jude says, false teacher, they're immoral. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the indwelling presence of Christ. They're not living in submission to the Word of God. So why would they not be indulging their passions? They are polluting the physical body with sexual sin. Then the second thing, or the third thing he says, these apostate teachers are rebellious. Specifically, specifically against the Lordship of Christ and the Word of God. He says they, they reject authority. See, they demand to rule themselves, and, and, when, and, when, and, and, and nobody's going to question them or their choices. You know, folks, a great sign of a false teacher is when they refuse to be open about their ministry's finances or their personal lifestyle. Really, that, that, that's a great sign of a false teacher, when they refuse to be open about their ministry's finances or their personal lifestyle. I've seen interviews with people I consider to be false teachers, and people start asking the question, Oh, now don't you ask me? I, I am the man of God, and I talk to God every day. Don't you dare ask me anything. Ooh, it's a false teacher, James says. They reject authority. Now, I'm not going to ride that hobby horse, other than to say that this world does not need more supposed teachers of the Word of God living in $10 million mansions with 23 bedrooms, two swimming pools, a Rolls Royce, and a couple of private jets. And don't you dare ask me any questions about the way I spend ministry money. Now Jude says apostate teachers are rebellious against authority. So just sit down and be quiet and do what I say because I talk to God every day. No questions. That should throw up lots of warning flags in your mind. And then fourthly, Jude says false teachers are arrogant. Now Jude's not speaking about their personal relationships here. When he says they speak evil of dignitaries... He's not talking about them being disrespectful to people, although they may very well be. The phrase literally means, the dignitaries means the bright ones or the holy ones. It means they blaspheme or they slander the bright ones or the holy ones, which is a reference throughout the New Testament to angelic beings. So Jude is saying that false teachers are so arrogant that they even disrespect angelic beings, both God's angels and Satan's demons. And he gives a very interesting illustration to make his point. 
He says in verse 9, when Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now this, uh, this event is not recorded in the Old Testament, but of course we know that the Holy Spirit was inspiring Jude as he wrote, so we know it's true. Moses' death is recorded in Deuteronomy 34, and the scripture says that God buried him and no one knows where his grave is. You can imagine, you can just imagine how Satan would love to have the body of Moses to turn it into an idol for people to worship. So Michael the archangel is battling Satan over Moses' body, and even Michael the archangel didn't smart off to Satan. Think about that. He's not just an angel, he's an archangel. He's way at the top of God's created order, order of angels. He's the protector of Israel. We saw that in the book of Daniel when we looked at it many months ago. He's, 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 a, special, he's a special, incredibly powerful angel we saw from the book of Daniel chapter 10. And, and, and Jude says, even Michael the archangel didn't tell Satan, you're not going to roll over me, bud. I'm taking Moses' body. You can't have it. That's not what he said. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael did not claim to have dominion over the devil to order him around. He relied on the authority of the Lord. And Jude is saying there are many false teachers out there today who are so arrogant that they think they have some inherent authority from God to boss Satan around and to order angels to do this and that and the other. Now we are commanded to resist the devil in James chapter 4. We are commanded in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the armor of God and stand against the devil. But we do not have dominion over him to command him. Only God can do that. And we have to rely on God and his authority. And many, many false teachers are so arrogant, they think that God has granted them dominion over Satan to order him around. And Jude says in that next verse that they are slandering things that they don't even understand. And they are corrupting themselves by doing so. You see, false teachers are dreamers. They're immoral. They're rebellious. They're arrogant. And I want to close our thoughts this week with a contrasting description of true biblical teachers. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5. And then we will be done. 1 Peter chapter 5. The false teachers over here on one side, they are dreamers, immoral, rebellious, and arrogant. But Peter says, this is what true ministers of the gospel are. 1 Peter 5, the first four verses. Peter writes, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, money he's talking about, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will preserve us from false teachers. May we not be led astray by dreamers. 
but may we stand firmly on the truth of the sure and certain Word of God. And we pray this in the powerful and sovereign name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.